Good morning, church. Good morning. Am I on here? Yes? Okay, good morning. Uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. It's good to have you here. Uh, today, we will be taking a break from our current study of Ezra and Nehemiah to look at the book of Colossians. I'm going to read all of chapter 2 this morning, uh, but I will say up front that we won't cover every verse. So if you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn, please turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2, and I'll be reading from the ESV. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
You may be seated. Before we begin, um, I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's help. So please pray with me. Father, you say that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I pray this morning that by your Holy Spirit, you would use your word to uncover what we truly think, believe, and know about the person of Jesus Christ and his glorious work of redemption. In your mercy, Show us where we have been deceived by the persuasive speech of the world and led astray from our all-sufficient Savior. And help us to put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after his image. Lord, I pray for your help this morning, that you would speak through me to communicate only what is true and faithful to your word, so that Christ would be glorified in us and the message of his gospel would spread throughout our communities our nation, and even to the end of the earth. I ask this in his name. Amen. Well, six weeks ago, Easter Sunday, Chris opened his message to us on Hebrews chapter 10 by asking a question. He asked if we had missed Christ, if amidst all of our daily activity, our work, and our responsibilities, our evangelism, if we had lost sight of King Jesus. This morning, I would like to ask you a similar question, and that is, how well do you know Christ? How well do you know this Christ? Is your knowledge limited to an intellectual understanding of him? Or have you tasted and seen that he is good? Do you have a wealth of theological knowledge but a lack of experiential knowledge that comes from conforming your life to him through obedience to his word? Have you only heard of him by the hearing of the ear, like Job, before the Lord spoke to him out of the storm? Or can you confess with Job after the Lord spoke to him that now you have truly seen him? Or maybe your knowledge of Christ is a kind of secondary knowledge, a knowledge that is one degree removed from the source itself. Children and young adults, children and young adults, do you still rely on your parents in order to know Christ? Or do you yourselves search the scriptures and pray that God would help you to know him and obey him? Adults, do you find yourself relying mostly on sermons or podcasts or books as your primary means of knowing Christ? Or can you say with the Samaritans, when they spoke to the woman at the well, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You see, knowledge of Christ namely a full and accurate knowledge of the sufficiency of his person and work. That's why it was so great to sing the song, In Christ, right? Not I, but Christ in me. This knowledge of Christ, a full and accurate knowledge of the sufficiency of his person and work, 
is at the heart of the letter to the Colossians. It was Paul's great concern for these Christians and also his primary reason for writing. He says in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. The knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul knew that if these believers gained a full knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ, it would give them full confidence in Christ and his work, leading to the strengthening of their innermost being and protection from false sources of knowledge threatening the Colossian church. Knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ leading to complete confidence in Christ, resulting in strengthening of hearts and protection from heresy. These are the things found in our text today that we will now look at more closely, considering also how they might apply to us as individuals and as a church. First, the sufficiency of Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 2 says, For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Christ is both fully God and fully man. And this sufficiency of his is arguably one of the most important doctrines for us as the people of God. Simply put, Christ is enough. There is nothing that can be added to him. He cannot be improved upon. He is altogether sufficient. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, because Christ is sufficient, he is able to create everything. Because Christ is sufficient, he holds all of it together. Because Christ is sufficient, he's the head of the church. And because Christ is sufficient, the blood that he shed is able to reconcile all things. Amen. Church, you need to hear this today. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. But do you know this about him? Do you really know this about your Savior? And I don't mean that you simply know the doctrine although that is absolutely necessary. We have nothing to stand on if we don't first know what the Bible teaches about the sufficiency of Christ. But the question is whether or not you truly live your life based upon this reality. Consider an average day in your week. 
and the decisions that you have to make for that day? Where do you look for wisdom, insight, and understanding? When you're preparing a sermon for the following week, when you're giving counsel to a brother or a sister, when you're teaching your children or mediating a dispute between siblings or deciding what you're going to cook for that day? What about when you have to determine which property to purchase for your next investment, when kids in your classroom ask you difficult questions, when you have to invest money on someone else's behalf, when you're making a decision about the brain surgery you're about to perform or the medicine you should administer, when you have to cut a tree next to someone's house or repair broken pipes or reconfigure a new highway, write a computer program, paint a house, where do you look for help? Where do you go for your wisdom and your insight and your understanding? Do you look first to Christ, your all-sufficient Savior, or do you look elsewhere? Or consider the trials that you have faced or are currently facing. Where do you look for strength to endure chronic pain or persistent discomfort? What about when your children are sick? Or do you experience sorrow from broken relationships and failed attempts at reconciliation? Where do you get encouragement for that? Where do you go for comfort? Do you know that Christ is sufficient for your needs? And what about your besetting sin, the harshness with which you treat your wife, or the disrespect that you display towards your husband? Or maybe it's the angry outbursts directed at your children or anxiety, or fear, or covetousness, or lust. Maybe you have a habit of saying unkind words to your siblings instead of building them up, or complaining, or lying to your parents. Regardless of your specific sin, the answer is the same. Christ and Christ alone is sufficient. Now, it's important to be careful here. Sin is not in the same category as daily decision-making, or personal trials. However, the answer is still the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because if Christ is not sufficient to reconcile you to God, if his blood is not sufficient to cleanse you from all of your sin, if his righteousness given to you is somehow not enough to secure your eternal salvation, then your efforts to kill sin will ultimately fail. The end result will be a self-righteousness that falls infinitely short of God's perfect standard. And so it is extremely important to understand that when the Bible speaks of the sufficiency of Christ, although it is saying that he is sufficient for all of our needs, it is ultimately talking about the sufficiency of Christ to reconcile to himself a people for his own possession through his blood, to the praise of his glorious grace. And because of this, you and I are united to him in such a way that we ourselves are, in fact, complete. We looked at verse 9 a moment ago, which says that in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And now in verse 10, we come to this incredible statement. It says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. The fullness of God is found in Christ alone, 
and you have been filled in him. We have no ultimate head, no ultimate rule, no ultimate authority except for Christ. There is nowhere else that we will ever need to look or go apart from Christ because we are in him. All that is needed for our salvation, we have in Christ. All that is needed for your sanctification, you have in Christ. All that is needed for your glorification, you have in Christ. The work is done. We have been filled. We are complete in Christ. The letter of 2 Peter says it this way. His divine power that same fullness that we just spoke of. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through the knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ, we become partakers of the divine nature. We are complete in Christ. And this is the knowledge that Paul wanted to impart to these Colossian believers. He knows that if they get this, if they grasp the sufficiency of Christ and the reality that we have been united to him and therefore are complete in him, this will give them full assurance. This will give them complete confidence in Christ. So look again at verse 2 and notice how Paul describes this full assurance that comes from the knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ. He says, the riches of full assurance. The riches of full assurance. In other words, possessing full assurance that comes from the knowledge of Christ is to be rich. It's to be wealthy. If you think about this, people in our world will literally do almost anything to become rich. They will labor and toil and wear themselves out for just one more dollar. Some will steal, some will cheat, some will lie, coerce, blackmail, manipulate, whatever it takes to acquire more wealth. Now, I'm not saying that to have wealth is a sin, so please don't leave here today and dump all of your assets and quit working. It's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this. If having a full assurance in the sufficiency of Christ is something that makes you rich, then don't be content with earning an average wage and living comfortably as a middle-class citizen of heaven. Don't settle for just some assurance or even a lot of assurance. Be willing to make sacrifices in your life in order to pursue a knowledge of Christ and his sufficiency that will give you the riches of full assurance. I was talking to someone last week and he pointed out that many things of great value in the scriptures are hidden or covered. And it usually takes work and time, some kind of sacrifice to, to discover the treasure. It's the same with the riches of full assurance that comes from a knowledge of Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
You won't find much wealth if you only spend a few minutes a day in your Bibles praying and praying. Or if in all of your spare moments you turn to Twitter or the news or podcasts, you'll probably just stay right where you are, middle class, comfortable, well-fed, entertained, but you'll never become rich unless you are willing to seek Christ in his word like the treasure that he truly is. Church, read your Bibles from cover to cover. Become familiar with every book and how it points to Christ. And memorize, memorize whole books. And don't make excuses. I'm not good at it. I don't have enough time. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The same Spirit that Romans 8 says raised Jesus from the dead. The spirit that is powerful enough to raise Christ from the dead dwells in you. He will help you if you want to memorize something. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. And he wants you to know his word. So cling to him in prayer and ask him to show you more of the glory of Christ. He will do it. He is faithful to do it. Now before we continue, it's important to note that this knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ and all its benefits for us come only through faith in Christ. Look again at chapter 2, verse 9. I'll read to the end of verse 12. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. We are raised with Christ in only one way, through faith. There is no other way that we are raised with Christ unless we have faith in Christ. If you have no faith, no real trust, no real belief in Jesus, then you are not in him. And if you are not in him, then you are not filled in him. And any knowledge you have of him is purely academic. It's head knowledge. And this kind of knowledge does not give anyone forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. It leaves a person dead in their sins and destined for eternal suffering. Faith is the only way that you will be united to Christ. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we are now filled in him, which means that we can be rich with full assurance in Christ and his work for us. And this should greatly encourage our hearts. This should strengthen our inner being, which is the very thing that God wanted for the Colossians. That's why he inspired Paul to write this letter. And it's the very thing that God wants for you as well, which is why God has preserved this letter for nearly 2,000 years. We need to have our hearts encouraged by this. We need to have our inner being strengthened by this. The knowledge of the sufficiency of Christ and our completeness in him that blesses us 
with the riches of full assurance should have a strengthening effect on our hearts. And this strengthening effect should lead to fruit in our lives. It should create Christ-likeness in us and lead us to live in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus. This is exactly how Paul and Timothy prayed for the Colossians in chapter 1. If you'd like to follow along, you can turn with me to chapter 1, and I'll read their prayer. Beginning in verse 9. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. For what purpose? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and once again increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, the heart is actually the center of our being. It's the place that affects our mind. It's the place that affects our emotions, our will, and our character. And when hearts are truly encouraged, like Paul is saying here, the result is greater obedience. The result is godly character. The result is fruit that glorifies God. True knowledge of Christ always results in transformed lives. There is no true seeing of Christ. There is no true knowing of Christ that leaves a person unchanged. It doesn't happen. If there is no change, you have not seen Christ. This is why many of the New Testament letters begin with doctrine. They begin with truths about God and our identity in him. And then they move to application, exhortation, command, and instruction. It's the same in Colossians. Paul spends the majority of the first two chapters highlighting the sufficiency of Christ and our union with him. And then in chapter 3, he says these kinds of things. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above He exhorts them, he commands them, he instructs them. Set your minds on things that are above. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put on the new self. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and more. The expectation throughout the New Testament is that when we truly know Christ, we will be changed. We will progress in sanctification. We will bear fruit and become more like Christ. Now, as we come to a a close, or move towards a close, I should say, there are two more things to point out, and these things are related to one another, and I hope that you'll see how they are related. The first is unity and the love that characterizes that unity. Unity and the love that characterizes that unity. Again, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says that their hearts, that is the 
Colossians and the Laodiceans and all who had not seen him face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. You see, if we have knowledge of Christ's sufficiency and an understanding of our completeness in him, we have full assurance, but we lack unity in love, then our hearts will actually not be truly strengthened. Our inner being will not truly be strengthened as it should. In fact, without unity and love, the whole thing will eventually come crashing down. Jesus said that every kingdom that is divided against itself is laid waste, and every house that is divided against itself will fall. Paul says later in Colossians 3 that we must put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It doesn't just bind some things together. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. Church, we are a body filled with very different people from many different backgrounds. And we have different views on certain theological issues as well. And those issues are important. I I want to say that, that those issues are important and they are worth discussing. I'm grateful for the way that the Lord has used this body to sharpen my own theological understanding and to prove that my positions are correct. (laughs) Truly, that's not true. I don't believe that. (laughs) Truly, I am grateful for what I've learned because of the many differences in our body. And as long as we exist as a church, these differences will remain. We talk about unity, not uh, uniformity. We will have differences. But never forget that there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And the fullness of this one God is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must guard the unity that God has given us. It is a tremendous gift that we have been given. Don't be deceived by persuasive arguments that would lead you away from the sufficiency of Christ. In verse 4, Paul says, of chapter 2, Paul says that everything he had just told the Colossians in the first three verses, that is, that his great struggle for them was to know Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in order to obtain the riches of full assurance for the strengthening of their inner man, to lead lives fully pleasing to Christ. Paul said all of these things in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Verse 4. You see, our great enemy, Satan, the father of lies, the slanderer, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone or some church to devour. He disguises himself as an angel of light, and his servants do the same. And he brings deceptive teaching and destructive ideas into the church through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And it is rarely noticeable or obvious. In fact, it is almost always packaged in the language of truth, and it sounds good. 
It seems plausible. It's persuasive. And so just as Paul warned the Colossians, who were Christians, by the way, he's not speaking to unbelievers. He's speaking to believers and saying, it's possible for you to be deluded or deceived. And so the same applies for us today. Paul warned these Colossians, and God warns us today, do not be deceived by fine-sounding arguments, smooth rhetoric, or well-crafted words. Be careful, church, what you listen to. Don't simply hear something in a sermon or in a podcast or read a book or a tweet and immediately assume that it's true, even if it is a trustworthy source. Even if it is a trustworthy source. Examine it against the scriptures and ask yourself whether or not it leads you to the all-sufficiency of Christ. The exact nature of the heresy that Paul addresses in Colossians is actually not agreed upon by biblical scholars. Some think that Paul was addressing Gnosticism, while others claim that a type of Judaism or some mixture of Judaism and folk religion was being brought into the church. But the specific type of heresy was not really Paul's primary point. Yes, he wanted them to know what it was, but that was not his primary point. Because there are all kinds of heresies and all manner of false teachings, it's very difficult for us to know every single one of those. If any of you have ever attempted to study a false religion in order to know how to evangelize followers of that religion, you know how difficult it is to understand even just one of these false teachings. So how do we protect ourselves against falling prey to heretical teaching? The answer is that we study Christ. We become so familiar with the Bible and what it teaches about him that when any type of false teaching comes along, we can immediately identify it because we know Christ. Paul mentions basically four characteristics of the heresy threatening the saints at Colossae. And for each of them, he does the exact same thing. His response is to point them back to Christ. In verse 8 of chapter 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elemental principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. In other words, the only thing that should take you captive, the only thing that should truly get your attention are things that accord with Christ. In verse 16, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Don't be deceived by shadows. In verse 18, he says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. Christ is our head. There's nothing else that is our head. And verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? You've died to Christ, 
You do not need to submit to anything else. And so here in every instance, Paul takes them back to Christ. He leads them back to the all-sufficiency of Christ in order for them to know how to deal with these heretical teachings. Church, again, do not be deceived by persuasive arguments that could unknowingly, unknowingly lead you away from Christ and then cause division to creep into our body. I said that these things are related. The unity that we have and heretical teaching or false sources of knowledge are related to one another. Because this kind of division can creep in even with good things. Some of the things that Paul mentions here are not necessarily evil in and of themselves. But they were either distracting from or supplanting Christ. And this can happen to us as well. We see something interesting, for example. We read something good and it grabs our attention. I'm sure all of you have experienced this. Before long, it begins to consume more and more of our thoughts. We start talking about it with people and it becomes increasingly valuable to us. Then we start to find ourselves getting defensive about it when people disagree. We become argumentative. And soon our goal is to get others to think the same way as we do. And then there it is. The first crack of division forms. We can't be naive. Just think about all the divisions in the church in America over the past few years. Not to mention all of church history. It can happen. We must be unified around the all-sufficient Christ in whom you are complete, in whom you have the riches of full assurance, in whom your inner being is strengthened, and from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together and grows with a growth that is from God. Brothers and sisters, take up your Bibles this week and open them to the book of Colossians and grow in your knowledge of the all-sufficiency of Christ and his work on your behalf. You are complete in him. Put off the old self that still clings to you. It's already dead. It has no hold on you. And put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, in whom your life is hidden and with whom you will appear one day in glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there is so much more of Christ to know. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. Help us to grow in that knowledge as we read your word, as we pray, fellowship with one another, and walk in obedience. Enable us this week to live in a way that is fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. For the glory of your name, amen.